Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 199, The Clipper Ships of East Boston Revisited. Hi, I'm Jake. This week I'm going to share my interview with Stephen Ujifusa, the author of Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship, which originally aired in July 2018. In the interview, Stephen will take us back to an era when the fastest, most elegant ships in the world were built in the East Boston shipyard of Donald McKay. He'll describe how they were used to trade for tea in China and gold in California, and how they helped America's most prominent families amass fortunes through opium smuggling. But before we talk about Boston's Barons of the Sea, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a title that somehow hadn't crossed my radar, despite having been published four years ago. In the time since then, we've done not one, but two episodes about the 1721 smallpox inoculation controversy in Boston, without reading Stephen Koss's book, The Fever of 1721, The Epidemic That Revolutionized Medicine and American Politics. I just stumbled across it, so I haven't actually read the book yet but it promises to weave together three threads in Boston history. In 1721, Boston was racked by a smallpox epidemic. It prompted Cotton Mather and Zabadil Boylston to begin inoculating residents against the disease using a method they learned from Onismus, who was enslaved by Mather. It was also the year when James Franklin launched the new newspaper called the New England Courant, the first independent paper in the colonies where his famous brother Ben would first learn the publishing trade. Koss also argues that 1721 was the year when Boston's sentiments began turning against crown government. A review in American Scientist says, Although the book's eponymous fever is smallpox, and smallpox does frame the events described in the book, writer and independent scholar Koss maintains that another kind of fever marks 1721 as pivotal in American history. Just as smallpox was beginning to take hold in Boston, James Franklin elder brother of a more famous Franklin, launched the first independent newspaper in the colonies, the New England Courant. Its emergence marked the beginning of a nascent nation's obsession with partisan broadsheets. And thanks to the coincidence of timing, the newspaper's editorial focus at its launch reflected deep concern with the disease taking hold of the city. Moreover, it provides perhaps the earliest example of an independent press covering a colonial epidemic in ways not officially sanctioned by the government. The tensions between an honest reporting of a disease's spread and the government's desire to downplay both the risk and its own culpability in the outbreak are in full view in Koss's history. Although Boston's relationship with the Crown had long been tumultuous, a circumstance evident as early as 1689 when Bostonians deposed their royal governor, Koss makes a convincing argument that the introduction of a partisan, independent press in the first half of the 18th century was either a cause or a consequence of an underlying dissatisfaction that led directly to the events of the second half. Despite being written four years ago, the shades of 2020 run very strong here, so you can see why this book's so high on my to-read list, if I can ever find half a minute to catch my breath and actually read something for pleasure. And for the upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a virtual author talk hosted by History Camp. On Thursday, August 27th, author Dan Gifford will speak about his book, 
The Last Voyage of the Whaling Bark Progress, New Bedford, Chicago, and the Twilight of an Industry. I read some of this book a few months back to see if it would make a good podcast episode, and I unfortunately had to pass, because Boston didn't really feature heavily enough. However, if you can stretch your definition of Greater Boston to include Salem and New Bedford, this should be an interesting talk. Here's how Dan described the book to me in an email at the time. My new book recreates the strange story of the whaling bark progress. A New Bedford whaler transformed into a whaling museum for Chicago's 1893 World's Fair. Traversing waterways across North America, the whale ship enthralled crowds from Montreal to Racine. Her ultimate fate, however, was to be a failed sideshow of marine curiosities and a metaphor for a dying industry out of step with Gilded Age America. After the fair is over, the whaling artifacts from the progress end up at the Field Museum, and the curators rebel against a whaling exhibit in their brand new museum. Within a few years, everything's packed onto an express train and shipped off to Salem, to what's now the Peabody Essex Museum, as a gift. This book uses the story of the progress to detail the rise, fall, and eventually demise of the whaling industry in America. The legacy of this whaling bark can be found throughout New England and Chicago, and invites questions about what it means to transform a dying industry into a museum piece. History Camp virtual events are conducted on Facebook Live, so I'll have a link to their profile in the show notes. Just head over there at 8 p.m. on Thursday to see the conversation live. We also have a bonus event this week. Three Area National Park Service sites are getting together to host a symposium exploring the rapid economic, social, and political change brought on by the end of World War II. Speakers from the Boston National Historic Park, Blackstone River Valley National Historic Park, and Lowell National Historic Park will give a series of brief talks titled Patriotism or Prejudice? Discrimination at the Charlestown Navy Yard. Thems and Homes, French-Canadian Women in Rhode Island and Post-World War II Housing, Women at War at Home, Lowell during the Second World War, and Boston Female Shipbuilders, Post-War. When the speakers conclude, there will be a panel discussion and time for audience questions. The event begins at 1 p.m. on Saturday, August 29th. For the links to join either of our free virtual events this week, or to purchase The Fever of 1721, head over to the show notes at hubhistory.com slash 199. Before I move on with the show, I want to pause and say thank you to all our Patreon sponsors. I've had a couple of excuses to go into the back catalog this week, which made me grateful for all the progress we've made in the past few years. First of all, preparing this episode made me reflect on how far our sound quality has come since this week's interview was originally recorded. This may have been recorded when Nikki and I still used our original podcast mics, which our Patreon supporters helped us upgrade from. It was certainly recorded before we truly understood sound treatment for our home studio. And it was recorded before we started using fancy post-processing tools to clean up our sound, which our Patreon sponsors also help us with. Then, last weekend was the anniversary of the first arrests for kissing in canoes on the Charles River, which was made illegal in 1903. When I dug up episode 41 to tweet about it on the anniversary... I realized that we quote a bunch of AP stories and out-of-town papers because we didn't yet have access to the Boston Globe archives. Since our sponsors now help us with better access to sources, I was able to quickly find a bunch of Globe stories that I wish we'd quoted in the episode. 
You can help me keep improving the show, as well as covering the basics like web hosting and security, by supporting the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Our sincere thanks to our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Stephen Ujifusa is a Philadelphia-based historian, and the book has a historical sweep much broader than just Boston. However, you know how we love Boston, and Stephen knows our fair city well from his time at Harvard. So this conversation will focus on the segments of his book that take place here at home. We recorded this conversation in July 2018, just a few days before the book hit store shelves. All right, we're here today with Stephen Yujifusa, the author of the new book coming out this Tuesday, Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this topic, why you decided to write a book about this race to build fast, graceful clipper ships in the mid-19th century? Well, I've always been interested in uh, ships in the sea since I could remember, uh, ever since my grandmother told me the story of the Titanic when I was around five or six years old. And uh, I was always a kid that built models of ships, of uh, ocean liners, of sailing ships, their complexity and beauty, these wonderful creations that were had to balance speed, comfort. Uh, these were the, both ocean liners and clipper ships were the technological marvels of the time. They pressed the limits of what uh, man could build. Uh, and I studied history uh, in college at Harvard, so I have a connection with the Boston area. And I got my master's in historic preservation from the University of Pennsylvania after that. I was always drawn to these ships. I still remain drawn to these ships even after uh, graduate school. And my first book, which was about the ocean liner, the SS United States, was about a transatlantic luxury liner built in 1952. And she was the fastest ocean liner ever built. Uh, she was larger than the Titanic, uh, much safer. And she was designed by a truly visionary, driven uh self-taught naval architect, also a Harvard dropout named William Francis Gibbs. And I sort of wrote about this era in world history and American history when the transatlantic liner was the symbol of technology, luxury, and speed, sort of the most complex object that mankind can fashion at the time. Uh, sadly, made obsolete very soon after her construction by the transatlantic jetliner in 1958. So when... Uh, Finishing A Man and His Ship, which came out in 2012, I was wondering about what topic would be a natural follow-up for a story about the SS United States. And I went back 100 years to the 1840s and 1850s when the American clipper ship came on the scene and truly revolutionized world trade. These wooden vessels uh, were built for speed rather than capacity. And... Donald McKay, who figures prominently in Barons of the Sea, was arguably the greatest builder of these clipper ships. His ship, the Flying Cloud, built in East Boston, still holds the uh, sailing record for a commercial vessel sailing from New York to uh, San Francisco via Cape Horn with a sailing time of 89 days, 8 hours. And initially, when I first started writing this book, 
I wanted to focus solely on Donald McKay and his quest to build the finest, fastest clipper ship. Then I decided also to look at the several families who are very closely involved in the financing of these ships. And the key was when I was watching the Ken Burns documentary on the Roosevelt family and Franklin Roosevelt's grandfather, Warren Delano II, came up, a native of the New Bedford area of Massachusetts. And he owned uh, several great clipper ships or was part owner of them. That's how the Delanos made their money. They were also very involved in the opium trade, along with several other Boston families like the Forbeses and the Perkinsons. They're all interrelated. So then it became a story, Barons of the Sea, not just of beautiful ships, but also of the founding of family dynasties, which are still with us to this day and have influenced American history, especially in the Boston and the New York area. So you follow a handful of families throughout the book. You have the Delanos, the Lowe's, the Forbes, and a few others um, from New York and Boston. But when the book opens, you're very far away from both New York and Boston. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about where the early chapters of the book take place and what the scions of these families were doing there at the time? Well, I opened the book, uh, first of all, at Warren Delano's Hudson River Estate at Algonac, uh, which is about uh, 100 miles north of New York City in the town of Newburgh. And it is a retreat that he had built for himself on Hudson where he could raise his family free from the cares of commerce and stress. And unfortunately, the crash of 1857, the panic of 1857 and the resulting financial fallout summons Warren Delano, who is in danger of losing everything, including his, including his mansion, back to China, where he initially made his fortune. So then I flash back to the 1830s, where there's a young Warren Delano rowing in a rowing competition on the Pearl River in Canton, modern day Guangzhou. This was the only city in China where Westerners, known as the Fanghui, the foreign devils, were allowed to do business with China. And a number of these young men, such as Warren Delano, used family connections, uh, used whatever they could to get a connection to go to Canton to make money in the tea and opium business. This was arguably the fastest way for a young man to make a fortune quickly uh, at the time for a young American male. So, Stephen, the era that this book takes place in, which is post-revolution and pre-Civil War, is an area that I think really gets glossed over in the standard American history curriculum. And I think it's an area that a lot of us don't know as much about. So can you set the stage a little bit um, as to why there's just this one city in China that's open to Westerners and kind of what their relationship was like between the East and the West at that time? Sure. Well, after the American Revolution ends, America still has its craving for tea. It's many ways it's tea that helped touch off the revolution with the Boston Tea Party. Uh, Britain at the time, during of the time of the revolution, had, as all of us know, a monopoly on the tea trade. Only British ships could deliver Chinese tea to the uh, colonies. So when the revolution ended, uh, Britain, of course, was not going to do business with its, with its uh, former colonies. So America still had this craving for tea. So in 1783, what do a group of American investors do? Well, one of the first things they do after the Treaty of Paris is formally done is they get together a consortium of investors to finance the construction and building of a ship known as the Empress of China to sail from New York to Canton. I'll refer to uh, Guangzhou, which we know today as Canton, uh, to sail there to trade for tea. 
And this voyage of the Empress of China brings back a 25% profit as well as a nice fresh cargo of tea that colonists have been craving for a long time. During the revolution, colonists made do with tea brewed from clover or other substitutes. Uh, it was seen as a patriotic thing, but uh, this, it was the colonists, the newly minted American nation still wanted its fix. So starting in the 1780s and continuing all the way up to the 1840s, uh, several American firms take root in the city of Canton. In this district of the city, known as the Factory District, this area, which was a very small, probably the equivalent of a few city blocks, was a walled-off compound where the Americans, the British, and other foreign nations were allowed to trade and do business, but they were forbidden from leaving that area, except for one island known as Macau, the Portuguese colony of Macau. So this was a very small, very confined area. And there are very many very popular paintings of the factory district. It was a beautiful white neoclassical uh, set of structures along the Canton Pearl River waterfront. And this is where firms such as Russell and Company, which is where Warren Delano and the Forbeses eventually worked. This is where they did their business trading in tea. Now, there was a problem with the tea trade in that Americans and also the British did not have the sort of goods that the Chinese wanted. So the British have been at this since the mid-18th century, since they controlled uh, India, was they smuggled opium into China using basically fast schooners known as opium clippers. They were basically drug running boats. And by the early 1800s, the Americans got in on the act, uh, smuggling in Turkish opium. And one of the first Americans to do this was a Bostonian named Thomas Perkins, and he got in on the business. And he began bringing a lot of his family into this business, into the tea and opium trade, including his nephews, the Forbes brothers, Robert and John Murray. At that point, if they're bringing in Turkish opium, what's the route that trade is following? Is it coming from Turkey and heading east, or is it coming from Turkey and heading back west to New York and then around the Horn? It was actually carried by ships from the Mediterranean to India and then sent to ports in China. It was smog- It was brought in by ship and uh, also the Americans began serving as uh, carriers for the British opium dealers, uh, You putting opium on their ships on consignment to China. And then these opium smuggling boats would anchor off of Chinese ports that were forbidden and there was a whole ritual where the customs official would come on board and say, what are you doing here? You know, you're only supposed to trade in Canton. And the captain aboard would say, oh, sorry, we're short of water. We're having some problems. And the customs official or Mandarin would say, okay, that's great. So how many opium chests do you have on board? And they pocket the bribe. And then the Chinese smugglers would row to the opium clipper and bring the opium ashore. This is cataloged by William Hunter, who was a partner at Russell and Company in his memoirs. And this is something that was kind of glossed over or explained away by a lot of these merchants. Uh, Warren Delano and Robert Forbes described the opium trade as a perfectly reasonable and honorable trade. And Forbes kind of added that all the best people in Boston did it anyway. This is a way to pay for the tea. Stephen, early in the book, you mentioned that both the shipping and the shipbuilding are really dominated by New York City in the early 19th century, but that a lot of the shipping concerns are actually owned by the New England Yankee families. So can you tell us how that happened and, you know, really why did this take off in New York and not Boston? There's actually a mass migration of 
Yankee families to New York after the construction of the Erie Canal in the 1820s. It was a case of follow the money. You had people from Boston, you had people from New Bedford who might have been involved in whaling or also involved in the China trade. Uh, they also, they saw which way the wind was blowing when it came to New York growing as a port. So you had families like the Delanos coming in from New Bedford. Warren Delano, after he spent his nine years in China, settled in New York. Uh, you had the Grinnell family from New Bedford settling in New York. The Forbeses remained in Boston. But by the 1840s, uh, New York shipbuilding was preeminent when it came to building these new clipper types. It wasn't until the late 1840s, 1850s that these shipowning families in New York, but also in Boston, began commissioning the clipper type vessel from Boston Yards. Uh, the first really prominent Yankee clipper uh, was launched in 1850, and she was known as the Surprise. And she was owned by a New York house, A.A. Lowe and Brother. And the Lowe's were involved in Russell and Company, the, the opium trading and tea firm. And she was uh, launched from the yard of Samuel Hall in East Boston. And I think the reason why the Bostonians began building these sorts of ships is there was a glut of orders in New York by the 1840s and 1850s, especially after the discovery of gold in San Francisco in 18, in San Francisco or in 18, in 1848 and 1849. So because of the overbuilding in New York, a lot of these New York, uh, shipbuilding concerns began turning to Boston shipbuilders such as Donald McKay, uh, and Samuel Hall. And they proved to be absolutely fantastic when it came to building these ships. Now, sticking with the surprise for a minute, uh, you described that as the perfect California clipper. Uh, what made the surprise so dominant for that early period? Well, what made the surprise a fascinating and wonderful ship is that she was a combination of the best types of two sorts of vessels. The first was the extreme tea clipper, which is a form pioneered by the naval architect from New York, John Willis Griffiths. In the 1840s, uh, the extreme T clipper was a vessel that was, uh, sharp ended bow and stern and also had a V shaped hull. She was actually kind of based, this model of clipper was actually based on the opium clipper, the very fast, uh, type of, uh, opium schooner. And John Willis Griffiths theorized if you have a sharp bow, sharp stern and a V shaped hull, you will gain maximum speed. Well, the problem with that, type of vessel is that uh, they do not have a whole lot of cargo carrying capacity. So you sacrifice cargo carrying capacity for speed. So a number of these great T-clippers, extreme T-clippers, such as the Rainbow, which is John Wells Griffith's first clipper, the legendary Sea Wish, which sailed from Canton, New York, in the record-breaking time of 74 days. That's a record that still stands for a sailing vessel. They were absolutely fantastic vessels. But when the California gold rush occurred in the late 1840s, uh, you had a problem because a vessel loaded with tea sails extremely well. It's a very lightweight cargo. But for the California trade, when you're sailing a vast vessel around Cape Horn and was arguably the most punishing passage uh, on the commercial passage on the high seas, a 10,000 mile journey around the infamous Cape Horn, you need a vessel that can carry a lot of cargo, but could also be fast and withstand some really tough storms. So what the Samuel Hall of East Boston did, and also what Donald McKay really perfected, was building a vessel with very sharp ends, but also a flat bottom, which granted much greater stability and also granted much greater greater cargo capacity. So 
the the surprise, which was built in 1850. She was owned by AA Lowe and Company. Uh, Abiel Abbott Lowe, the owner of the surprise, was so happy with Samuel Hall's uh, result that he gave him a very handsome bonus. And Samuel Hall, I think, was kind of uh, at the launch of the surprise on East Boston, was kind of showboating a bit that he took up a dare that he could launch the surprise fully rigged. That was something that wasn't done. Usually you did not raise the mass until the very end. You didn't rig the vessel to the very end. He launched the surprise uh, fully rigged, uh, ready to go and ready to be towed to New York. And there was a great big party in East Boston uh, to celebrate this launch. And in she went into Boston Harbor with her mast fully raised and she did not capsize. Yeah, the the only ship launch we've described on the podcast in the past is the 1797 launch of the USS Constitution, which was very dramatic, but not for good reasons. It took three attempts to get it to successfully launch. It kept getting stuck in the ways and the first, you know, the president of the United States and the, the governor of Massachusetts are there and all the dignitaries for the first attempt and it slides you know, 15 feet down the down the ways and sticks. Then a couple of weeks later, they come back with a much smaller crowd of dignitaries and get it to slide another 20 or 30 feet and it sticks again. And then finally, almost a month after the first attempt to, to launch it, it gets into the water. I don't think anybody attended the, the third attempt. So I was really interested to read a different type of ship launching drama in your book. So what, what would a fully rigged launch look like? Well, you would have a, a clipper ship that would have mass up to 15 stories tall uh, perched on an angle on the on the launching ways in East Boston, you would have her draped in bunting. You would have tens of thousands of people coming to watch. You'd have boats in the water. She'd be flying the American flag. This was these were these launches uh, first pioneered by Samuel Hall and later really brought to perfection by Donald McKay, who was a master of publicity. Uh, these were days that the city of Boston would be a, it would be a national it would be a city holiday. Work would stop so people could watch it, uh, and yeah, there was always that risk factor of what if the ship capsized. Uh, the remarkable thing about these clipper ships is that they were launched, rigged, and loaded up with cargo without any trial voyages. This is not like, a, say, an ocean liner or a steamship. Uh, many years later, where you would have a trial voyage and you'd see how fast she can go. Uh, what her performance would be. No, they would load them up and send them off to San Francisco. Um, a lot of Boston ships like the Surprise were uh, completed, rigged, and then towed down to New York, uh, usually by a very colorful and very famous steam tug called the R.B. Forbes, named after Robert Bennett Forbes of the Forbes family. Then she would be loaded up in New York and sent off to China or sent off to San Francisco. But these were dramatic events. You would have uh, poetry readings. You'd have orations. Uh, in one case, uh, there was a funny story when the clipper ship Staghound, which was Donald McKay's first true cl- extreme clipper built for the California trade, uh, she was being launched and she was pushed a little too early and she began sliding down the ways and the person responsible for it screamed, Staghound, your name is Staghound, and threw the bottle, the bottle of the bow before it went out of reach and his hat tumbled into the mudflats. So this was not a precise science. That's terrific. Now, you mentioned the steam tug, and that that raises an interesting point. I'm always fascinated by this long period of overlap between sail and steam. And as we found out in, in last week's podcast, that extended well into even the 1940s. But this, a century before that, is is much earlier in that overlapping period. 
So since steam vessels existed at this point, why is it that the sailing ships, the, the clippers, were dominating the trade with California still at that point? There's a very simple reason for why clipper ships dominated the China trade and the California trade is is fuel. Back then, uh, steamships had very limited uh, fuel capacity. The more coal you pile into a, into a steamship, the less room you have for cargo. So steamships actually carried the bulk of passengers and mail during the California gold rush in the 1840s and 1850s. They, they, they carried on. So they, they dominated that trade pretty early on. A steamship, a paddle wheel steamship would sail from New York, stop in Panama or Nicaragua, and then the passengers would have to disembark go overland by mule and then wait for another steamship to come and get them and carry them to San Francisco. By the mid-1850s, a 40-mile-long railroad constructed by William Henry Aspinwall, who also was owner of the clipper ship Sea Witch, uh, made that trip a lot easier. But when it came to carrying cargo, the Panama or Nicaragua route did not make any sense at all because a ship would have to stop at the isthmus, unload the people would have the People would have to unload all of that cargo carried across the isthmus uh, by pack mule, or even in the 1850s, was you'd have to unload it onto a train. And then you'd have to wait. It just didn't make sense. So a clipper ship, if it sailed from New York, could just go straight around Cape Horn and uh, carry it, that cargo nonstop without having to break bulk, as the maritime saying goes. So it just made sense. And clipper ships did not require uh, fuel. So a, a steamship could sail from uh, New York to one side of the, of the Panama Isthmus, but then another steamship would have to pick up the passengers and mail and sail from the Pacific side of the Isthmus to San Francisco. And steamships had been around plying America's riverway since the early 1800s with uh, Robert Fulton's North River Steamboat. In the 1840s, transatlantic steamships were making regularly scheduled crossings from Liverpool to Boston, that's a 3,000-mile journey. So a Cunard Line paddle wheel steamship such as the Britannia could easily make that trip in about two weeks. But that was the outer limits of how far a ship, a steamship could sail. A clipper ship could sail 10,000 miles without having to refuel. So wind and nature still provided the propulsion, and it still made it the most cost-effective way to carry cargo. Very few passengers actually traveled on clipper ships. They were passenger cabins. Uh, on the California Clippers, but it was not a the common way to go. So bringing it back to Boston, can you describe what Donald McKay's shipyard would have been like? And, you know, how long would it take to construct a clipper ship? A clipper ship in Donald McKay's yard could probably be finished in around six months. And his yard stood at the foot of Border Street. Uh, there's not a whole lot of it there left today. There's very few physical reminders of it. But it was a very busy place that employed a huge percentage of the residents of East Boston. East Boston in the 1840s and 1850s was very much a working man's town. You had uh, carpenters, you had coopers, you had all these people who were built, who were there to support the yard and the many yards that were there. And Donald McKay was known as a very kind and very generous employer. And he actually had a number of his family live in the area. He was not an American. He was from uh, Nova Scotia. He had immigrated from Nova Scotia to New York and then to the Boston area when he was a young man uh, for economic reasons. And he lived at a in a big house uh, known as Eagle Hill. And he would walk to work every morning. He would show up very early. 
And it was said that he would actually at night when the yard was closed would come up and caress the hulls of his ships. He was that devoted to them. And he had a large family uh, from his first wife had died soon after he came to the Boston area. And his second wife, uh, Mary McKay, uh, was his business manager. She also came up with many of the poetic names for uh, these ships, such as Flying Cloud and Romance of the Sea. So both his wives, uh, it was a true partnership. His first wife, Albinia Bull, who we had met in New York, she had received a much better education than McKay had. She came from a family of some means. And she taught him a lot of the mathematics and uh, physics and other basic principles that he never learned in school because he came from a very, very poor family. And uh, so, yes, this was a place that was humming with activity. And you would have several ships at a time in the 1840s or 1850s sitting on the ways under construction. And Donald McKay was not the sort of man who felt he was too good to pick up his hammer or uh, hammer uh, trundles into the ship's hull to show his men how it should be done. Well, he didn't start out as a genius shipbuilder. He he must have worked his way up from somewhere. Can you describe how he learned the trade and, and how he came up into his later prominence? Well, he arrived in New York at the as a teenager uh, and his father had mo- had moved the whole family to New York from Nova Scotia in search of opportunities and for Donald McKay, who was clearly very talented at building boats. He built small boats uh, on his own in Nova Scotia. And he went there to apprentice at the yard of Isaac Webb in New York. And the apprentice system was a brutal system where you worked, uh, you know, long hours up to 18, 20 hours a day as a teenager. You made basically no money. You were made a vow not to marry. You basically had to, work your way up. It was almost medieval. And Donald McKay described the system as slavocratic. Uh, he was kind of a rebel, even as a young man, but he did master the art of shipbuilding at the yard of Isaac Webb in New York. And uh, he actually was able to terminate his apprenticeship early so he could uh, work at another yard because he was so talented. And uh, then he ended up moving up to Newburyport where he started his own yard uh, where he felt he had a lot more freedom because in New York, it was co- the shipyard uh, business was pretty much taken up by several families, including the Webb family. And it was a new report that he met a ship owner, a Boston ship owner by the name of Enoch Train, who ran a company known as the White Diamond Line. These were transatlantic packets. And Enoch Train was very impressed with the quality of construction and the speed, first and foremost, of some of McKay's smaller vessels. So Enoch Train helped finance Donald McKay to come down and build his own yard in East Boston. And for a long time, uh, from the 1840s to the early 1850s, Donald McKay was the almost exclusive shipbuilder of transatlantic packet vessels for Enoch Train. And a packet vessel was basically a very heavily built vessel, sailing vessel, that was meant for the transatlantic trade and during the 1840s and 1850s made a number of uh, companies very, very wealthy because they carried the bulk of the famine Irish to Boston. In fact, uh, one of John F. Kennedy's ancestors came over to America on a McKay-built packet known as the Washington Irving. And the Kennedys actually settled in East Boston during the 1840s, within sight of the McKay Yard. 
So it's interesting to hear about McKay's um, apprenticeship and background and how that maybe translates to him being a more generous and, dare I say, progressive employer. Because I remember reading in the book that Warren Delano um, really was not. It seems like he was actually a very challenging person to work for and that life on a ship was not as good as life working in the shipyard. That's a very good point. Working on a clipper ship during the quote-unquote golden era of the 1840s, 1850s, during the China trade years and the uh, California gold rush years was a very brutish and very tough uh, way to live. Uh, the food was terrible. Uh, you would be eating hardtack, uh, lobscouse, very, very basic fare. If you were a passenger on a clipper ship, you were luckier. You had canned food and some of the meals described by the passengers on the clipper ship was very, very, it was actually quite uh, lavish. But if you were a crew member, you would be on watch many, many hours of the day. You would uh, be sleeping in the forecastle or a deck, a deck house uh, in very cramped conditions. And uh, during the early 1850s, it became harder and harder to get skilled seamen to crew these ships. So, Often what you'd have is the captain would have, say, he need to get 50 to 60 men to crew up a clipper ship, and he could only sign on 30. So what he would do to fill up the ship is that he would hire a so-called crimp who would basically go out to the bordellos and the dive bars of the Boston or New York waterfront, and the madam or the saloon keeper would uh, drop opium or some sort of drug in their patrons drinks and then he would deliver to the crimps these passed out men <laughs> and next thing they know they'd wake up and they're on a clipper ship bound for san francisco or a clipper ship bound for uh china at least they didn't get knocked out and drugged through a tunnel like in portland or seattle <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting to note like this practice is happening on warren delano's clipper ships and yet he is anti-slavery unlike a lot of his upper class peers. Yeah, this is a very uh, strange contradiction in that clipper ship owners and a lot of these Yankee merchants were actually pretty uh, progressive when it came to uh, slavery. And uh, yeah, Warren Delano did write that uh, he felt that the black man was is equal to was an equal to the white man, and he was very pro union, very anti slavery. But yeah, these clipper ship owners. Uh, such as Warren Delano, such as Abbott Lowe, and a lot of these very generous philanthropic men made their fortunes not just in clipper ships, but also in the opium trade, which wreaked havoc in Chinese society. Uh, tens and thousands of Chinese would become addicted to the this drug. And it was something that these men were shielded from. And it was also a time when opium use in patent medicines was very, very common in America as well. So opium was not seen as a necessarily a bad thing, but to the Chinese, especially the Chinese government, they saw the, the havoc it was wreaking in their population. People were literally wasting away with this drug. It's interesting to, to, to talk about the 19th century opium trade. I know I've read some articles recently about how much of Boston philanthropy in the early days was underwritten by the proceeds of the opium trade locally. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh conundrum in a way. Uh, these Boston merchants such as John Murray Forbes, Robert Bennett Forbes, and also in New York, people like Warren Delano, Abiel Abbott Lowe, 
they were very uh, philanthropic and very generous to causes back at home. Uh, the Forbeses gave money to MIT. They gave money to a bunch of other uh, wonderful Boston cultural so- uh, institutions. Colonel Thomas Perkins, who was their uncle, who was the, one of the founders of these fortunes, one of the original partners of the firm that became Russell and Company, he donated a huge amount of money to the, what eventually became the Perkins School for the Blind. Uh, so back at home, uh, these merchants were pillars of society, pillars of philanthropy. And also, in many cases, in the case of Warren Delano and John Murray Forbes, uh, they became very pro-union and uh, quite anti-slavery, something that was not shared by other people in their circle, especially those such as the Lowell family or those that had their money in textiles, uh, because te- the textile Boston fortunes were so intimately tied to the slaveholding South. So related to the pro-union leanings uh, of Warren Delano, you mentioned in the book that he once hosted John Brown for tea, and I have a real obsession with John Brown as a historical figure. Do you have any details on what that was like, or? Yeah, sorry that that was uh, that was John Murray Forbes. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't think it was a. Uh, yeah, I don't, it was not Warren Delano. It was John Murray Forbes who was really. Um, became more of the act. He was sort of a later convert to abolitionism in the 1850s, but yeah. That makes sense. He was in Boston at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, John Murray Forbes uh, was in many ways a progressive, even though he was a very, very sharp businessman. He did host the controversial John Brown, who later went down in fame as the uh, leader of the 1859 insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Uh, That must've shocked a lot of his peers, such as the Lowells and the Appletons and the Lawrences, who were <laughs> very economically dependent on uh, the textile trade and cotton. They were afraid, these families were afraid that slavery would disrupt the uh, cotton supply chain. But Warren Delano was actually uh, a good quote from him. He said that uh, we should have just laws for the colored man as well as the white man. Uh, which is a pretty amazing thing to say in the 1850s from a, a merchant of his class. Yeah, that's something that a, a radical abolitionist like William Lloyd Garrison would have said around the same time. So that's a, a bold statement for an upper class merchant, for sure. Yeah, and John Murray Forbes also was uh, a very big patron of Ralph Waldo Emerson. In fact, his son married Ralph Waldo Emerson's daughter. So <laughs> a lot of that Forbes money ended up in the Emerson family. So Ralph Waldo Emerson... <laughs> Uh, always saw John Murray Forbes as a very benevolent, uh, kind, and intellectually curious man. Even though John Murray Forbes had no formal college education, he was tr- he went off to become a merchant as a very young man. My guess is that John Murray Forbes, when he came back to Boston, became one of the richest men, I think tried to cultivate people like Ralph Waldo Emerson as a kind of compensation for his lack of a formal college education. So I think a lot of these men, Warren Dellow didn't go to college either. Uh, neither did Abiel Abbott Lowe. And a lot of the low money ended up at Columbia University. My suspicion is a lot of the impetus to give uh, was not just out of social aggrandizement, but also as a way of sort of showing the, the showing society that these were, that they were cultivated men and maybe as a way of compensating for their lack of college education, even though they were very successful as Yankee merchants. Emerson said of John Murray Forbes, how little this man suspects with his sympathy for men and his respect for lettered and scientific people 
it is not likely in any company to meet a man superior to himself. And uh, this is describing someone who had made his initial fortune in the opium trade and was invested in the clipper ship business. Now, Emerson's not the only leading light uh, to have something to say about one of the characters in your book. There's also a, a section where you describe a poem written by H.W. Longfellow about Donald McKay himself. How did Donald McKay go from building Atlantic packets to rubbing elbows with people like Edward Everett, Daniel Webster, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Uh, through being a p- public relations genius, he was unique among the shipbuilders of his era and the clipper ship builders to be a real master of publicity, of using the newspapers to advertise the construction of a ship. He actually got a very well-known journalist on his side to basically describe uh, the construction of these ships and the launches of these ships to get public interest. So McKay became very good friends with a journalist at the Boston Daily Atlas, and you can read some really fantastical and wonderful accounts of the construction and launching of these ships in the archives that are online of the Boston Daily Atlas. So the Boston Daily Atlas actually became kind of McKay's publicity mouthpiece. And through these descriptions, he, these these newspaper descriptions, you can find them online, really went into extensive detail of um, the construction specifications of these ships. And uh, these newspapers attracted notice. And I think he was also, McKay was just a very handsome, charismatic man. He kind of was the, in the this era in American history, the mid-19th century, this was sort of the Jacksonian era, the celebration of the common man, the working man. Donald McKay fit the part. Uh, he, as I said earlier, had no shame at working with his hands. He didn't try to be some hoity-toity uh, aristocrat. He was very proud of his humble origins. He had these rough, calloused hands. He still worked in the shipyard. He was a very handsome man. He had this sort of poetic look about him. He had kind of a Byronic look about him. And so I think that was very uh, uh, attractive to people like uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Even though McKay was a native of Nova Scotia, he was an immigrant success story. He built a house uh, in East Boston, which he rather grandiosely named Eagle Hill, which still stands today. And he added a, uh, it was, he built that house with his own hands, the beautiful house. And it had 13 uh, columns on the portico to signify the original 13 colonies. And he built it for entertaining. He built it for parties. He built it for his family. And it was here he entertained Daniel Webster. It was here he entertained uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who in the 1840s wrote the poem, The Building of a Ship, uh, which is still known today. It was basically a celebration, an ode to Donald McKay. And it sounds like when McKay switched from building packets, Atlantic packets, to building clippers, his level of success really took off. You describe what I think you said was his first true clipper, the Flying Cloud, as having a bidding war for who was going to own her before she was even completed. Was that his PR uh, mastery or was there more behind that? I think there was more behind that. It was actually the uh, second clipper, true extreme clipper he built. The first one was the Staghound, which I mentioned earlier. But the Flying Cloud was his second. And there were two clippers that he was building at the same time. Uh, The first was the Staffordshire. The second was the Flying Cloud. They're both being built side by side. The Flying Cloud slightly ahead of the Staffordshire. 
both were being built for Enoch Train, who I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. The uh, Staffordshire was meant for the transatlantic trade. The Flying Cloud was being built for the California trade. And then in comes Moses Grinnell, a partner in the firm of Grinnell and Mintern in New York, who was looking for a clipper ship. He had previously been involved in the, tra- in the transatlantic packet business, but was looking to get into the California business. And I think he was looking for a good deal. He didn't want to build one from the ground up. He wanted a clipper very quickly. So I'm not sure. It's unclear in my research whether it was an agent or whether it was Moses Grinnell himself who came up from New York. But he offered, the firm offered uh, Enoch Train $90,000 for the hull of the Flying Cloud, which was unfinished. And Enoch Train said, well, I already have another clipper underway. I already have a good relationship with Donald McKay. He could build me another one. The Flying Cloud was purchased by Moses Grinnell for $90,000. And Enoch Train would later say that that was the worst business decision he ever made because the Flying Cloud was a truly special ship. She set the record from New York to California in 89 days. She actually broke that record twice, uh, once in 1851 and I believe once in 1853 under her captain, Josiah Perkins Creasy of Marblehead, Massachusetts. So uh, that was his most famous clipper. He went on to build several more. But the Flying Cloud is the one that's arguably the most famous in name uh, and in verse and song and in legend. So speaking of Captain Creasy, um, I noticed in the book with much interest that his wife, Eleanor, served as his navigator. I imagine that that must have been incredibly unusual. It was not all too unusual for a captain to to have his wife come along on the voyage, but it was unusual for Eleanor Creasy, uh, a woman like Eleanor Creasy, to actually be uh, a captain's navigator, to have that uh, mastery of navigation, which is a very complicated art. Uh, She, like uh, her husband, was from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Her father was a naval officer, and he actually allowed his daughter to have a very strong education in mathematics and in navigation. And the Creases were an incredible team. They really, really were. And in addition to being a navigator, uh, Eleanor Creasy also did the more traditional roles of a captain's wife, which was helping entertain the passengers and also in times of an emergency serving as a nurse to uh, injured sailors and injured passengers. So, but she was a truly remarkable woman. Sadly, no portraits of or pictures of her survived. There is an, a likeness of Captain Creasy survive that survives, but uh, it was truly a remarkable partnership. And they stayed on that ship for several years together. And in fact, as soon as they retired from the Flying Cloud in the mid 1850s, she never was able again to re- retain that same speed she did in the past. Um, it didn't help that her owners, uh, Grinnell and Minter, didn't exactly maintain her all that well. But it was a combination of fantastic ship design on the part of Donald McKay and navigation and seamanship on the part of the Creases that truly set the flying cloud apart. Well, speaking of navigation and seamanship, so one thing that was completely new to me when I read the book, you describe how a skipper at that time sailing from the east coast of the U.S. to California would actually start out navigating toward Africa before then turning back toward Brazil. They'd actually sail east to go west. Uh, Why was that? Uh, That was the way to follow the prevailing trade winds. Uh, If you stuck along the coast of Brazil, you'd head right into the doldrums. And uh, that just made the most sense. It sounds counterintuitive. But 
by the early 1850s, a volume published by Lieutenant Matthew Fontaine Mowry, The Winds and Currents of the Oceans, had appeared. And this was the first time that really a complete set of, a nearly complete set of data of the prevailing winds and currents of the oceans had appeared. Uh, Matthew Fontaine Mowry uh, was a retired naval officer who had been disabled in an accident. His, his sea career was over. So starting in the 1840s, he had a desk job at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington. So he began collecting and compiling all of these logs that have been written by captains, U.S. Naval captains on their voyages. Uh, and he would note when the captain would hit the doldrums, when they would hit good winds. And he began to piece together this truly incredible series of uh, charts that indicated which way to go to stay with the prevailing winds. And these volumes by Matthew Fontaine Mowry were released beginning in the 1850s, early 1850s. And navigators like Eleanor Creasy and other captains of clippers began using these to really maximize their time in prevailing winds versus in the spending time in the doldrums. So it was not just ship design that improved in the 1840s and 1850s, where you have sharp hulls and uh, higher and higher rigs. It was also the work of Lieutenant Matthew Fontaine Mowry that allowed these captains to skirt the doldrums where there was no wind or little wind at all and stay for as long as possible in favorable winds to maximize speed and decrease sailing time. Nikki and I, a couple of weeks ago, were out in San Francisco and we were at the San Francisco Marine National Historical Park. And in the visitor center, my eyes were immediately drawn to ship models of the Sovereign of the Seas and the Champion of the Seas, which are both Donald McKay clippers. So clearly, a century and a half later, the McKay clippers are still making an impression on the West Coast. But can you describe what the scene would have been like, the, the initial impression that the flying cloud would have made on its first arrival through the Golden Gate? Well, imagine San Francisco in, the, in 1851. This was not the sleek, metropolitan sophisticated city that we know today, uh, one of the tech headquarters of the world. This was a rough and ready gold miners town. You would, the structures that were built uh, on San Francisco shores were ramshackle, hastily thrown up. There'd actually been several fires uh, during this during the gold rush. So when, when the, the city would burn down, they'd have to quickly build it up again. So a lot of these buildings are pretty, uh, <laughs> not exactly much to look at. And you'd have a San Francisco Harbor was filled with ships, uh, tall ships of all varieties, some of which had actually been abandoned by their crews and were rotting close to shore. Uh, the captain would suddenly find that he'd have no crew members and have to leave the ship behind. Uh, so you'd have not just ships that were getting ready for the next leg of the voyage, but you also have hulks of abandoned rotting sailing vessels just sitting there anchored in the harbor. Uh, you had, you had saloons, you had gambling halls. And then through the Golden Gate, in would come this beautiful white-winged clipper ship looking like a uh, swan, uh, and it had just been painted up. In the days before she would arrive in San Francisco, the Flying Cloud would have been repainted, repaired after uh, 89 days of being battered at sea, and uh, the wooden signal, the wooden tower atop of today's Telegraph Hill would there were two arms would signify what sort of ship was coming in. And if it would signify a full rigged ship, that meant a, a clipper ship or a large cargo vessel was coming. And then the merchants would uh, run down to the uh, 
the shores to see what was going to be unloaded from the flying cloud. And, uh, of course, the flying cloud would anchor offshore to take on her pilot. Although in one case, another clipper ship, the, uh, which was, uh, piloted by uh, one of the Lowe family, uh, the, uh, MB Palmer, uh, she was, uh, brought in without the pilot because the captain was impatient to get to shore. And of course he ticked off the pilot. <laughs> he almost, uh, everyone thought he couldn't do it. You can't, it's, it's not like a power vessel. Where you can just like, you know, dock with, uh, you know, dock unassisted. <laughs> so, uh, and there were steam tugs, but it was a truly remarkable sight. And the journalists at the time, when they saw a ship like the, the flying cloud come in, uh, they commented, God, only a few years ago, a ship that would say, a, a sailing ship would be this ungainly, ugly tub that could sail as fast sideways as fast as it could forward. And in you have come because of the demands of commerce and the great advances of ship design, this magnificent, uh, vessel that looked like an apparition on the, on the seas. It was so perfectly formed, so graceful, so tall and beautiful. Uh, and it was truly a remarkable thing. And of course, people were taking bets on which clipper would come in first. In fact, large sums of money were wagered in Boston, New York, and San Francisco on which clipper would come in first. Seems like within just a few years of this very triumphant first arrival of the Flying Cloud in San Francisco Harbor, the business of shipping was beginning to change. And uh, in the book, you describe the Sovereign of the Seas as a, a clipper that Donald McKay's shipyard was working on in 1852. And you say that it was making people question McKay's sanity. Well, why was that? McKay was very much a believer in the bigger is better school. <laughs> and uh, there's a very simple rule of marine design that had been known for a century before McKay was active, that the longer the ship is, the faster it's uh, natural speed is. So he was thinking, well, in order to make them faster, I need to build them bigger. And he was building ships for the California trade. And he was thinking, okay, prices in California will remain high for a while. And I can make a lot of money or my clients can make a lot of money uh, shipping more and more goods to California at faster and faster speeds. There were two things going on. Uh, by the mid-1850s, California had built enough of its own manufacturing and farming infrastructure that you didn't need to ship in chairs, tables, eggs, cheese, and a lot of booze uh, from the East Coast to San Francisco and sell it at very inflated prices. So shipping rates peaked around 1852, 1853, and then began to go down. Now, the, what made a California clipper ship very successful was that you uh, had a ship that required a lot of crew, so that they were very expensive to operate. And they still sacrificed, even though they were, had flat bottoms, they still sacrificed cargo for, uh, cargo space for speed. So the economics of having these very fast, very expensive vessels gradually didn't make sense for the California trade. Uh, meanwhile, in the China trade, um, uh, designer by the name of Captain Nathaniel Brown Palmer, who figures prominently in my book, he had sort of come up with the ideal form for a ship that could serve both in the California trade and the China trade. Uh, his clipper ships, uh, such as the NB Palmer, were smaller than McKay's ships like the Sovereign of the Seas, or maybe around 1,000 to 1,200 uh, tons, but they could uh, on one hand carry enough goods to San Francisco where they could still be profitable. They were Big, but not too big where they would be too expensive to operate. And then they could sail across the Pacific to China 
uh, pick up a load of tea, then sail around the Cape of Good Hope, Good Hope and come back home. McKay's Clippers by the mid-1850s, or early, even the early 1850s, grew too big. So when Donald McKay built the Sovereign of the Seas, which was the biggest merchant vessel uh, of its time, Enoch Train apparently originally was going to be the buyer, and then he balked and decided to pull out. And the Clipper might have originally been named the Enoch Train. So here was Donald McKay left with this uh, gigantic clipper ship left on the ways. And he was like, well, I've made some money building these ships. Let me finish it myself, and I will sail her to San Francisco. And he had his own brother, Laughlin McKay, serve as captain. And uh, she made a very successful journey to San Francisco. Eventually, she was sold to a um, another merchant. And he said, okay, I made some money off of the Sovereign of the Seas. Let me build something even bigger and better. And that was the star-crossed Great Republic of 1853. Now, the Great Republic, I think, had two lives in a way, um, kind of a literal phoenix rising from the ashes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the fire that destroyed the Great Republic and then how she was revitalized after that? The Great Republic is one of the great what-ifs of maritime history. Uh, she was completed in 1853. She was she uh, measured at 45 500 tons, which made her a true behemoth, well over 300 feet long, all entirely built of wood. Uh, she was a mechanical marvel. She had a steam engine that would help raise and lower uh, the yards. Uh, she could carry a good complement of passengers. And Donald McKay gambled everything on this ship. He uh, basically bankrolled the ship himself. She cost approximately $300,000, which was a good-sized fortune back then. And uh, the people of Boston just were so proud of this ship. Uh, when she was launched, Longfellow did read the famous building of a ship at her launch, and I'd like to read it uh, in part. Thou too sail on, O ship of state, sail on, O union, strong and great, humanity with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years is hanging breathless upon thy fate. We know what master laid thy keel, what workman wrought thy ribs of steel, who made each mast and sail and rope, what anvils rang, what hammers beat, in what a forge and what a heat were shaped the anchors of thy hope. Uh, in this poem, uh, Longfellow is comparing ships like the Great Republic to the Union, the United States. So this was a big event for Boston, Unfortunately, uh, and this is sort of uh, sailor's bad luck here or sailor's superstition, Donald McKay's uh, son and some of his buddies broke into the storehouse and drank the champagne destined for the uh, christening of the ship. So they had to use water, in fact, to uh, christen the ship, uh, which was seen in retrospect might be seen as a bad omen. Uh, but a bottle of water was broken over the ship's bow. She was uh, completed. She was towed to New York where she was to be loaded with uh, grain, and she was destined actually to sail for Liverpool uh, and then sail on to Australia because McKay was now starting to build ships on commission for the Australian gold rush. Uh, just before, the day before Christmas, uh, December 24th, 1853, a fire breaks out at a bakery uh, near the South Street uh, neighborhood in New York City, and the fire spreads to the wharves, destroys several other ships, and then spreads to the Great Republic. She is burned and sunk at her berth, 
Nothing could be done to save the ship. Uh, apparently, money is offered for people to climb up into the rigs and help extinguish the fire, but it does not. No one wants to climb up to a sh- climb up that high, it, and the ship is sunk at her berth. And what is left of her is left smoldering. And Donald McKay had uh, not fully insured the ship. That's what he could afford. And he was absolutely broken by this. This was his dream magnum opus uh, destroyed. So he actually sells the wreck to uh, the firm of A.A. Lowe and Brothers, which operates a number of clipper ships. And A.A. Lowe was actually a business partner of Warren Delano. And Warren Delano was also invested in uh, the Lowe Brothers concern. The ship is raised and uh, cut down into a smaller vessel, still very, very large. And uh, she is operated as a pretty successful clipper ship for a number of years. But the tragedy is that no one ever knew, would ever know, how fast the Great Republic would have sailed as a 4,500-ton, four-masted, truly glorious uh, clipper ship as Donald McKay had intended her to be. So speaking of the other great republic, America, um, as we get into the late 1850s here, I wanted to ask how the Civil War would impact Donald McKay's business and then just these shipping trade routes in general. Well, the Civil War uh, sadly made Donald McKay one of the great uh, losers of shipbuilding to uh, survive after the clipper ship business faded in the 1850, late 1850s, uh, he began building uh, ships on commission for the uh, Union Navy. And one of his monitors, the USS Nauset, ends up nearly bankrupting him after the U.S. Navy demands some design changes. There's actually a flawed design that he followed. And then he had to fix the ship at his own expense. And that actually really uh, deals his yard a tremendous uh, hit. So he is actually in very deep financial trouble by the end of the Civil War. And in 1868, 1869, he makes one last-ditch effort to build a clipper, a ship known as the Glory of the Seas, which was a medium clipper. She was not as sharp as his earlier clippers. Sadly, uh, he had done the same thing he'd done before. He builds a ship on his own account. And when she arrives in San Francisco... In 1870, I believe, she is seized by Donald McKay's creditors, and (laughs) he never gets the chance to uh, sell her. He ends up uh, having to sell his yard, sell all the equipment, and he ends up moving to a farm in Hamilton, Massachusetts, and uh, dies a rather sad man. Uh, He uh, had proved himself to be a uh, a failure as a as a businessman, although arguably the greatest ship designer of his time. The Civil War is also disastrous for uh, the northern ship owners, such as the Lowe's and the Delano's, who own these clippers, and also New Bedford whalers as well. The commerce raiders built by the Confederacy, usually in British yards, were built to chase down and destroy and capture the cargo of their vessels. And insurance rates go up. Uh, several clipper ships were actually destroyed by these commerce raiders, the most famous of which was the Jacob Bell, which was uh, chased by the commerce raider CSS Florida uh, on a voyage from China. And the clipper ship is actually able to outsail the uh, steam-powered commerce raider until the winds die. The CSS Florida captures her crew, her passengers, takes all the tea and all the valuable cargo on board, 
Of course, Confederates want their tea as much as the Northerners do. And then they set the Jacob Bell afire. So um, the Yankee clipper ship fleet, but also especially the uh, Yankee whaling fleet, is devastated by uh, these Confederate commerce raiders, such as most famously the CSS Alabama. And by the Civil War, a lot of these clipper ship barons began investing money in railroads, in coal, copper mines, real estate. So they began diversifying their fortunes anyway. So by the end of the Civil War, a lot of these men end up richer than before. And uh, a lot of these fortunes, newly expanded, uh, went on to become the founding fortunes of the Northeastern Boston, New York uh, elite. And, and just to just to close out, uh, the uh, Warren Delano, who's the main character in my book, he loses a lot of his fortune in the Panic of 1858, and he sails to China two years later to remake his fortune in the way he the quickest way he knew how was getting back into the tea and opium trade. And then in 1862, he sends for his family, including the young child Sarah Delano, the future Sarah Delano Roosevelt, FDR's mother. And the whole family sails to China on the clipper ship Surprise, which is owned by the Delos and the Lowe's. And Sarah Delano remembered vividly the sea shanties sung by the sailors, the journey that her family made to China to rejoin her family. And she would sing the song she heard to her one son, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and to her grandchildren. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was president of the United States, loved to repeat the business maxim that his Delano grandfather loved to say, you must never let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And he kept a model of a clipper ship uh, close to him in the White House. He loved building ship models, and one of the ship models he built was the Surprise. So it sounds like even though the Civil War is really the end of an era for the, the clipper ships, it's setting the, the stage for very important figures yet to come. It does. If not for the clipper ships and not for Warren Delano, if not for the opium trade, if not for the China trade and the San Francisco trade, there would be no Franklin Delano Roosevelt. All right, Stephen, before we let you go, tell our listeners how they can find your books, where they should follow you online, and anything else that they should know about you. Well, Barons of the Sea will be available on July 17th from all retailers. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. It's available on IndieBound or your local bookstore. Uh, my Facebook page is Stephen Ujifusa, and my Twitter handle is at Stephen Ujifusa, one word, uh, Stephen with a V, U-J-I-F-U-S-A. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Facebook. And my first Boston engagement, my first Boston speaking engagement will be at the East Boston Social Centers on July 26th. And uh, it'll be an honor to be speaking there. It's at 7 o'clock and in the evening, and there'll be a book signing and a talk. And it'll be an honor to be speaking only a stone's throw away from Donald McKay's yard. And the talk will focus on Donald McKay and East Boston and the great clipper ships of that era. All right. Well, listeners can look for links to those social profiles and that upcoming talk in this week's show notes. Stephen, we just want to say thanks a lot for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. 
To learn more about Stephen Ujifusa and his book, Barons of the Sea, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 199. I'll have a link to buy the book, as well as links to Stephen's website and social profiles. I'll also include photographs of Donald McKay, his shipyard and home in East Boston, and some of the most famous ships he designed and built, as well as a vintage map showing where the shipyard was. And of course, I'll have links to information about our two upcoming virtual events and the Fever of 1721, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.